Um, hello, everyone. Um, I, I, my name is Christina Chan. I'm the moderator to tonight's panel. Um, I first wanted to give a big shout out to the Boston Bar Association, especially its diversity and inclusion section uh, for partnering with us um, in organizing this panel and always being generous and supportive of the affinity bars, including Alam. And a huge shout out to Shawnee individually for um, helping host the panel tonight and being our logistical guru to ensure um, tonight's panel runs smoothly. So good evening. Um, thank you everyone so much for joining us uh, for our civil rights violations and hate crimes panel. Um, as mentioned earlier, this panel is organized between the Asian American Lawyers Association of Massachusetts, ALM, um, in conjunction with the BBA. Um, in celebration in honor of Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month or AAPI Heritage, Heritage Month, which is the month of May. Uh, we especially thought the topic of this panel was quite timely uh, given the recent uh, severe escalation over the past several months of some extremely egregious, uh, xenophobic, bigoted, um, discriminatory and bias motivated incidents that have been occurring across the country targeted um, against AAPI individuals. Um, and building off this heightened awareness um, and focus on the AAPI communities that have now come to the forefront at this moment, uh, we thought it'd be an important time to educate ourselves on the civil rights protections available, the civil rights statutes, the enforcement efforts on the federal, state, and local levels, as well as discuss um, opportunities to um, use multifaceted uh, community-centered approaches to mitigate and prevent some of these incidents from happening and uh, thinking about ways to target the root causes. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our awesome lineup of speakers tonight. Um, first, we have Michelle Young. Um, who's an assistant U.S. attorney in the Civil Rights Unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in the District of Massachusetts. Um, then we have Shafak Islam, uh, the Deputy Division Chief of the Civil Rights Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Um, and then last but definitely not least, Bethany Lee, um, who's a Senior Attorney and Director of the Greater Boston Legal Services Asian Outreach Unit. So thank you all for joining us tonight. We, we're really appreciative and excited to hear from you. Um, and then just a reminder uh, before we start is that we will be saving approximately the last half an hour of, of the session to answer any questions and do a Q&A. Um, and there is a chat box at the bottom of the Zoom uh, panel. Uh, that says Q&A, where you can type up and submit your questions anytime during the presentation, uh, but we will save answering them till the very end. Okay, great. So, uh, Michelle, I will turn it over to you. Great. Test my poor share screen sharing skills. Um, can everyone see? Awesome, all right. Um, hi again, I'm Michelle and I'm a, an assistant U.S. attorney from the Civil Rights Unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office, as Christina mentioned. Um, and I've just prepared a short presentation to provide an overview of the statutes that we enforce and the various civil rights that we protect. Um, all of these issues affect the AAPI community and we're very interested in conducting as much outreach as possible so that folks know about the diverse range of work that we do. 
Um, the federal government, especially the U.S. Attorney's Office, is not often the, the first place folks think of to reach out to when there's a civil rights violation. So we just we know how it's important it is to continue to do outreach like this, um, really to, to achieve two goals. One, just to put some face to sort of the faceless um, federal government out there and so that folks know me as someone specific to reach out to with potential um, civil rights violations. Um, and two, just to let folks know about the super wide range of civil rights laws that, that we enforce um, and that, that I think continues to be surprising to folks. Um, so here's a broad overview of the various civil rights that we protect. Um, I'll go through each of these in, in greater detail. And instead of going through sort of the black letter law of the statutes we enforce, um, I'll try to just use some case examples because I find that tends to be a more effective way to illustrate the kind of work that we can do. Um, and also what's important to know is that for some of these areas, the way that we enforce these um, civil rights protections is both through civil and criminal means. Um, so our civil rights unit uh, partners closely with the, the criminal prosecutors in our office um, if and when there's a, a, an incident that requires that kind of multifaceted approach. Um, so first, one of the things that we do is work on police misconduct cases. Um, at the Department of Justice and the US Attorney's Office, we have the authority to investigate law enforcement agencies for patterns or practices of, of misconduct. Um, this is obviously a, a huge priority for DOJ um, in the country right now. And our US Attorney's Office led the only um, police pattern or practice investigation under the last administration, and that was of the Springfield Police Department's Narcotics Bureau. Um, our investigation revealed that the Narcotics Bureau engaged in the pattern or practice of excessive force, um, and we found evidence of officers repeatedly punching individuals in the face um, and found that these head strikes often led to head injuries um, and were the result of unreasonable takedowns. So right now, um, as has been publicly reported, we are in negotiations to resolve these findings. So the, the conclusion has not yet been reached, um, but oftentimes what happens is that we will enter into a settlement agreement um, entered by the court and overseen by a monitor to make sure that the, the um, injunctive relief we um, include in an agreement um, is implemented efficiently and effectively. And the goal is really forward-looking to make sure that future violations don't occur and that systems that led to the violations in the first place get fixed. Um, this is also a good example of conduct that can also be prosecuted criminally. Um, coincidentally, there is a uh, Narcotics Bureau officer um, in a pending case with our office um, for an alleged um, incident where the officer kicked a juvenile in the head, spat on him and said, welcome to the white man's world. Um, so this, we always wanna hear about allegations of police misconduct. Um, we, we partner with DOJ in DC, we partner with our criminal prosecutors and we um, coordinate with the state attorney general's office to, to work on these kinds of issues. Um, we also enforce uh, the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act, which allows us to investigate allegations of uh, patterns or practices of misconduct in correctional settings. So in November of last year, our office actually concluded an investigation 
that found that the Massachusetts Department of Corrections violates the Eighth Amendment rights of prisoners in mental health crisis. Um, our investigation very narrowly focused on the experience of prisoners in mental health crisis. So they were um, identified as having acute mental health needs, yet they received inadequate clinical treatment and oftentimes were um, theoretically under heightened supervision with one correctional officer assigned to supervise them to make sure that they didn't engage in self-injury um, while they were in this acute mental health state. Yet while on Mental Health Watch, under that heightened supervision, uh, we found that prisoners routinely had access to um, tools such as razors to cut themselves with, batteries to ingest, um, and, and things like that. The, the Mental Health Watch conditions actually approximated what we call restrictive housing or what is popularly known as solitary confinement and prisoners were oftentimes kept in those conditions while in acute mental health distress for extremely long periods of time. Um, so this slide just shows that we are also currently in negotiations with this, um, the state to resolve our investigation here. And again, um, our investigations try to result in agreements that are forward-looking and try to fix systemic issues that led to the violations um, to begin with. We also do a lot of work in the area of housing rights and enforcing the Fair Housing Act, which uh, protects against discrimination based on a multitude of different um, protected classes. Um, um, I, I'm hoping this works. Recently, the Department of Justice started a sexual harassment and housing initiative. And there's a great video, if I can get it to work, that sort of best summarizes what sexual harassment and housing looks like since that's something we oftentimes think of, I think, in the employment context and more rarely think of um, in the housing context. Oh, I almost had it, but I don't know if the volume's very loud. So Michelle, I'm not hearing any sound. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I thought that I can hear the sound, so I assumed you could. Um, okay, well, that is too bad. Um, apologies about that. Um, in any event, um, the we our office has um, several sexual harassment and housing matters currently either in the investigative or, or litigation um, posture. Um, and, you know, common scenarios are landlords or someone who's in control of housing, um, seeking sexual favors in lieu of someone paying rent, um, creating such a, a hostile living environment that um, folks feel uncomfortable in their, in their homes um, because of the harassment. Um, and we continue to be surprised by how many of these cases we have and how many are getting referred to us. Um, and these cases are, you know, we, we continue to think it's really important to do outreach to other attorneys and advocacy organizations and social service providers because um, women and survivors of sexual harassment and housing are not often gonna think to go knock on the door or call the US Attorney's Office, right? Um, these cases involve incredibly vulnerable populations of people who, 
fear reporting this kind of conduct because their housing is at risk. Um, and oftentimes there are single mothers who are concerned not only about their own housing, but the housing of their whole family. So um, we, we very much rely on partnering with folks to, to help us um, uncover these cases. Um, we have a very generous statute of limitations policy. So it's, it's easy or statute of limitations under the statute. So it's, it's, it makes it sometimes um, easier to bring these cases than one might imagine. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we don't hear about these cases until years after the conduct has occurred. And I think tenants and women and attorneys think there's no way that the DOJ could do anything about this now, but um, we oftentimes can. Usually the way that we hear about these cases is um, direct service providers who are assisting folks with through the eviction process are more emergently and urgently handling that tenant's eviction needs. And then, you know, an ancillary issue is sort of this harassment they were fearing from a landlord. And that's actually ultimately what oftentimes leads to the eviction is if someone decides they're no longer gonna, um, you know, put up with this kind of harassment. And then it's, it's sort of this ancillary issue that attorneys and the tenants don't really know what to do with. And it, it's unfortunately a very prevalent issue that we're seeing um, very widespread in Massachusetts. Our civil rights unit also does a, quite a bit of work in the education um, sphere. Um, recently, we conducted an investigation of the Boston Latin School um, that uncovered instances of racial harassment and uncovered a, a violation of Title IV, which revolved around the school's mishandling um, of its review of allegations that a, a male student addressed a female black student during class using profanity and a racial slur. Um, here we reached an agreement where the school agreed to mandatory annual training and reporting on racial harassment, student climate surveys, and a new administrative position. Again, we, we all, our agreements are oftentimes very much about injunctive relief and forward-looking um, systems change to make sure that these things don't happen. Um, we also do a lot of work in the area of protecting the rights of English learners. Um, this is obviously another issue that probably is acutely felt by the AAPI, AAPI community. Um, and we are overseeing agreements in the Boston Public Schools and Worcester Public Schools. Um, if there are individual complaints, we can oftentimes, you know, figure out how to how that might be something part of something we review as part of the our job in overseeing the settlement agreements. But if there are individual complaints in other districts, we might not be able to handle individual instances of um, English learner issues, but we can figure out who the right advocacy organizations are or see if it's part of a larger pattern that we might want to investigate. Um, we do a lot of work in the area of enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, we recently reached an agreement with the Department of Children and Families um, after our investigation found that the agency discriminated against um, a mom with disabilities and we're now overseeing an agreement um, to, that requires DCF to change its policies and training and complaint um, adjudication process. A huge area of focus for us right now is um, enforcing the ADA with respect to treatment of folks who are taking medication to treat their opioid use disorder. 
um, refusing treatment to folks who are taking medications such as Suboxone or Methadone is a violation of the ADA. Um, and this is kind of a, a new sort of way that we've been using the ADA. And so folks, and folks oftentimes don't know the requirements under the ADA and um, we've been finding a lot of cases here that get resolved um, pretty quickly. Um, we also enforce the ADA with respect to um, providing effective communication to folks with vision and hearing disabilities. So when individuals receive you know, or services from police departments or from hospitals or from schools, um, there are requirements that these places of public accommodation effectively communicate with persons with disabilities. So this is something that might um, affect individuals and um, the AAPI community. And I feel like the disabilities, uh, the communications um, issues related to disability are only compounded by, by language barriers too. And so we um, very much think it's important to continue doing outreach on this to make sure that complaints come our way and that we're really um, enforcing this law as it ought to be. Um, I'm going quickly, because I feel like there are just so many slides, but feel free to ask me questions at the end. Um, we also um, enforce several statutes related to the rights of service members and veterans. Um, there's a law called USERA that has a very long <laughs> formal title, um, but it prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of past military service and also protects reemployment rights for individuals who leave civilian employment to perform military service and then come back. So for example, if um, a police officer um, leaves civilian service to go serve in the military and then for five years and then comes back, you know, that person should get credited those five years in pension and, you know, salary increases, et cetera. And so we have had, I think, just one of those cases in our district, but um, continue to um, enforce those laws strenuously. Um, and here's a topic that I think folks are probably really interested in, unfortunately, in this day and age um, with the increased incidence of um, bias-related crimes that we're seeing. So our office works closely with DOJ and DC and with the FBI um, to protect against hate crimes. Um, there are generally three types of hate crimes we see, an assault, a threat, and or property damage. Um, so, you know, the basic structure of a hate crime is that there's an act or true threat against a person um, or the exercise of a, a federally protected right based on their membership in a protected class. Um, and there are lots of, you know, there's a lot of gray area between what constitutes a threat and what constitutes um, First Amendment protected speech. But I think sort of our big takeaway is that we don't want folks to be sort of thinking through this analysis, you know, on their own. We, we want, just want folks to report it and to call our office and to have um, us weigh in. Because even if it doesn't rise to the level of a hate crime, it may well be something or, you know, may result in something that we just want to keep an eye on. Um, you know, the analysis is oftentimes very murky and things that might not seem like a true threat to a layperson actually are because of 
bizarre nuances in the law. So we just want to encourage reporting. Um, some examples of hate crime cases that our office has prosecuted um, include a, um, a 2018 incident where the de a defendant posted an image to face the Facebook page of the Islamic Society of, of Boston. That's not the full acronym, but the ISBCC and the Islamic Society of Northeastern University depicting a mosque in flames with superimposed lettering that stated, burn your local mosque, along with the statement, hello scumbags, next to a smiley face emoji. Um, we also prosecuted a church arson in Springfield um, where defendants used racial slurs and expressed anger with the election of Barack Obama um, and discussed burning the Macedonia Church of God in, um, in God in Christ's new church building because the church members, congregants and bishop were African-American. Um, and in 2017, um, we prosecuted another case um, where a man had, po uh, had posted threats to bomb Harvard and shoot attendees at the Black commencement event. Um, so I just provided a little more color on those kinds of cases in case it, it helps folks think through the kinds of incidents and issues that might rise to the level of uh, a federal hate crime. But again, really the takeaway is let us know. Um, you can always most easily report an incident to your local law enforcement. Um, there's the FBI 1-800 number and our local US Attorney's Office now has this um, 617 number um, that we man carefully too. So there are lots of ways and you can also call me and I'll provide my number at the end of this presentation too. <laughs> um, so that is that. Um, how do cases come to the civil rights unit? Aside from those kinds of info numbers and hotlines I just provided, there are lots of ways we're, we're very much um, aggressively trying to pursue civil rights violations and, and, and work up cases. Sometimes things come to us very directly just through an individual civilian filing a complaint with us. Um, oftentimes we're doing outreach with community organizations and advocates who are in a much better place to sort of receive these complaints and hear from folks. Um, a lot of our um, um, opioid use disorder related complaints and um, sexual harassment and housing complaints have actually come from social workers who work at hospitals. Um, we follow the news very carefully to see if sort of incidents might give rise, seem like they're smelling like a bigger pattern that we should be aware of. Um, we also, um, follow PACER and private lawsuits that are filed and, and get referrals from federal and state government agencies. Um, so that's it. This is our contact information. Um, and I can, in the chat box, put my personal email address and direct line. But thanks so much. I hope that wasn't too long. Sorry. Thank you so much, Michelle. I found that really informative and really great presentation. Thanks. Um, we will now turn it over to Shafak from the AG's office.
sorry about that. Give me just one more attempt at this. Is my screen on the, is my PowerPoint on the screen? Yes, it is. It has the, uh, the side panel for the next slide if, if you wanted that up or you can collapse that perhaps. Okay. Yes, I think I shall. Sorry about that. I thought I had this figured out. Give me just one moment while I try again. My apologies, um, having some difficulty with the screen share with taking that down. Do you mind if I take a minute to see if I can resolve sure. this and perhaps we could uh, move to Bethany, would that be an, an inconvenience? Sure, or actually, um, I know we said we were gonna save um, questions to the end, but we do have one that came in um, after uh, Michelle's presentation that maybe we can quickly try to answer uh, while we wait. So we have one question that says, um, is there any practical advice you can give to people to help support a claim that something is a hate crime since it's not always so clear? Thanks, I think this is important for bystanders and witnesses to know too. Sure, um, no, it's a great question. Um, I mean, so going back to the slide that sort of lists the three broad categories of what's a hate crime, I think when there's an assault or a physical sort of altercation. I think that the line may be more clear with those kinds of incidents. Um, the line with threats is, um, I think, more gray. Um, you know, there's all sorts of bizarre nuances that if, you know, the, the verbal threat is sort of hypothetical, then it's um, not a, a true threat. But if it's actually indicating that harm will be done, and those are the kinds of cases where um, you know, it's it's not even always clear to an attorney well versed in this law. So um, I think we just want to hear about that. Um, and then property damage, I think, is probably also one of those issues that's more clear cut um, and is oftentimes something that you'll see after the fact um, and not in the moment. So um, you know, when there are you know racial slurs or signs um, on a, a property, um, but I, I think the general takeaway is still that um, over-reporting is never a bad thing. We're never gonna be disappointed that we had a conversation with someone and really thought through whether or not an issue did rise to the level of something we wanted to look at further, because um, it's, 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 it's just tricky and not always clear. I don't know if that helped answer the question. Um, and then I see another question about whether or not the USAO has any active hate crime investigations or prosecutions related to recent AAPI incidents. Um, unfortunately, until a case reaches a point where there's something public to share, we, we aren't at liberty to, to share the status of 
investigations. Um, but um, yeah, as soon as there's something like an indictment or, or something like that, we, we can. We usually do issue press releases and those usually get picked up more broadly. So Michelle, I'd be curious to know, are you able to share whether there you've seen an uptick in reporting um, that's reached the USAO, um, even if it hasn't resulted in an active investigation? That's a good question. Um, I honestly don't know the accurate answer since I my focus is on uh, more civil civil rights. So I don't I'm not I don't know the kinds of numbers that are being reported and how they relate to past reporting. Um, so I don't know. So if Shafak still ha is having technical difficulties, then we'll go ahead and move on uh, to Bethany from the Greater Boston Legal Services Asian Outreach Unit. Hey everyone. Um, and I anticipated having technical difficulties, so I'm not even gonna try doing any sort of PowerPoint. So what that <laughs> means is you get to look at my face. <laughs> um, so my name is Bethany. I'm the director of the Asian Outreach Unit at Greater Boston Legal Services. And I'll share a little bit about what we do so that you have a sense of the populations that you work with and what that means with respect to hate crimes, hate incidents, harassment as a result of um, racial bias. So the Asian Outreach Unit was founded in 1972. And one of our main missions is to provide access to legal services and resources and uh, sorry, go ahead, and, and, really, and really make sure that the low-income Asian immigrant community knows that there are free legal services and resources like all the different people who are on this um, webinar, uh, you know, who are on this webinar, sorry for background noise. Um, um, and next year is actually our 50th anniversary. Um, in, in some ways, unfortunately, we still remain a main access, access point for low-income Asian immigrants. When we were founded, part of the idea was that, um, you know, we were necessary because there are no other, there, there really aren't that many main access points for uh, Asian immigrant communities that speak an, a language other than English. And in some ways, unfortunately, that remains the case. AOU still remains a main access point for the Asian immigrant community, which is important, I think, in, in, in considering what it means to making sure that communities have access to uh, reporting hate crimes and hate incidents. The other portion of what we do is really, uh, um, partnering with community organizations and, and supporting the work that community organizers um, and social services groups are doing so that a lot of the major projects that we work on come from both the direct uh, intake that we do in communities, usually um, in person in Chinatown and Dorchester and Malden, now over the phone during the pandemic, which interestingly, I think as a result of the language access that we provide has increased our access to the community during the pandemic. And 
what I mean by that is where, and I'll share this line at the end, um, but people leave messages in Vietnamese, Cantonese, Mandarin, and we respond to them usually within 24 to 48 hours um, in, in that person's language. And so as a result, we get, we get a whole slew of different uh, calls about a variety of issues. Some of our major projects that we work on include anti-displacement and gentrification work in Chinatown and Dorchester, um, fighting deportations in the Southeast Asian community just before the pandemic, we were actually able to welcome back uh, to the United States and the first Cambodian person to come back after deportation uh, to the East Coast. This was right before the pandemic, before everything went into lockdown. So we felt very lucky about that. We work on voting rights issues that have come up really as a result of language, language access in our community. And recently in Malden, we're able to um, get the elections department to, uh, as a result of um, you know violations that we didn't have to file a lawsuit on, but get the elections department to um, higher trilingual speaking person there. Um, uh, we work with undocumented immigrants and making sure that they, um, you know, uh, are aware of their rights and um, seek the access that they need um, in order to understand whether or not they have immigration relief. And in response to the pandemic, we worked with community organizations to start an emergency relief fund for undocumented Asian immigrants, um, as well as people who just don't have access to government resources. Uh, and so related to the pandemic response, I mentioned the phone lines, and we've also pivoted a lot of our resources to dealing with the unemployment insurance crisis, which ultimately within the Asian immigrant community has meant a language access crisis. I think the pandemic has highlighted what we all know about our community, which is that language access is a huge issue in, in trying to get, um, you know, uh, making sure that low-income Asian immigrants have access to the resources that the rest of us have access to. Um, just a couple more projects, just so you have a sense of the breadth of our work, is that the nail salon, we have a nail salon project, um, which I think is particularly relevant post-Atlanta shooting, given that that shooting involved um, low-wage women workers who are sitting at all these different intersections of immigration, race, class. Um, and so actually next week we'll be launching a report uh, with Viet Aid that is focused on interviews and surveys that we've done with low-wage uh, Vietnamese nail salon workers, uh, both before and during the pandemic. And then finally, um, we uh, are increasing our work in the education sphere. Uh, recently, we represented, uh, we have been representing Black, Latinx, and Asian American groups and families who intervened in the BP in the Boston Public School Exam School case, uh, really in support of education equity, and um, are increasing. Uh, uh, the language access work that we do in different school systems. And so the reason I describe some of these major projects is partially to give you a sense of how we respond to emergencies and crises in our community. Um, all, most, if not all, of the projects that I just described really emerge as a result um, of communication and response to uh, what's happening in the low-income Asian immigrant community. And so uh, pivoting to anti-Asian violence in, in recent months and recent weeks doesn't come as a surprise, um, but I think it's also worth noting that, um, you know, this is an issue that our communities have always been dealing with in, in tandem with all the structural racism, racism that is happening. Um, and so, 
Um, and I think the other, I mean, the other thing to note is, uh, I think while there's been a ton of focus on hate crimes, oftentimes what is happening is actually hate incidents, right? Kind of the harassment um, uh, and other issues that people are facing that might not rise to this kind of higher level of physical violence that we've been seeing. And and as, but as a result of the focus on um, the increase in uh, physical violence in our communities, what we've been hearing from the populations that we represent is the same kind of fear that we have all been facing as Asian American individuals, right? Um, the difference, I think, is that when we talk to nail salon workers in the Vietnamese community, right, the day after the Atlanta shooting, what they were telling us is, yes, I'm fearful, but I also still need to get on the subway to go to work so that I can figure out how to pay my rent and get my kid back in, you know, to and from school safely. Um, you know, similarly, uh, you know, immigrant students uh, had been dealing with harassment um, and hate incidents for, have been dealing with hate incidents for a very long time, and particularly um, in the period uh, as we all went into lockdown, that was a time when we were hearing from community groups and education advocates about increases in um, hate incidents and harassment. And, and what that means for, for workers or for students um, is that you know, if they're if they're working at a nail salon, for example, uh, they might hear someone ask for a worker who speaks English without without an accent, um, or people you know are being told, go back to where you come from because the pandemic is Asians Asian people's fault, or it might come in the form of even you know as we all saw, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, avoiding Asian businesses. Um, and it's interesting, I think, how some of these individual incidents then become transformed into structural racism, right? Um, uh, because what we then began to see is that, for example, Gavin Newsom, the California governor, said that a nail salon was responsible for the state's first community exposure. Um, and the reason that's racialized is because nail salons are predominantly Vietnamese, right, in Massachusetts, in California. And so what that meant, right, um, is that when, when states started talking about reopening, uh, an example of how this plays out is that in Massachusetts, nail salons actually weren't allowed to reopen until after hair salons were reopened, which is interesting, right? Like why, like when we talk about personal contact, there's there's very similar personal contact, but I, I think partially as a result of the racialized um, uh, framing of this pandemic, I think there has been broader, you know, there's been obviously broader structural impact and that's played out in these many different ways. Um, I think it's important to address what we see as some of the challenges of, of addressing hate incidents and hate crimes. Uh, and, you know, unsurprisingly, I think it's also some of the same challenges that come with addressing issues that face the Asian American community across the board, right? We've talked, I've talked a little bit about language access, um, and that's, that's obviously a huge issue. Uh, when you need to, you know, when, when you're being harassed, or if someone has hit you or, you know, attacked you on the street, and you need to ask for help and tell someone what's happened, but you don't speak English, what do you do? Like, how do you actually do that and communicate that? I've actually seen some interesting programs 
I'm not sure that, you know, like whistles are always the best way, but I've seen some interesting programs in relation to language access, right? Where like a whistle can kind of be that that alert for, for someone who doesn't speak English. Um, but the other thing is I think when people, uh, you know, kind of repeatedly face um, language barriers and see that systems aren't accessible to them, then they often don't use these systems. And so I think that's, that's you know, a very similar barrier. Um, I think the role that police and law enforcement plays in our communities can be problematic. And that we see play out um, not just in hate crime, you know, with hate crimes and hate incidents and how, how, how comfortable people feel reporting, but also when people call the police and report. Um, oftentimes because of language barriers, cultural barriers, um, and just the way, you know, systemic racism has played out in law enforcement and police, um, you know, what happens is every, almost every, I would say every single incident um, that we interact with when people call our legal hotline ask, uh, explaining how, you know, they've been tied up in the criminal justice system is an incident when, uh, you know, where, where the police have, um, uh, ended up harming the person in some way, right? So for example, uh, a tenant called the police when the lender pushed her down the stairs, but she was the one that was arrested or a neighbor stabbed someone's wife and daughter, but it was the wife and daughter when they, oh, so what, but when the wife and daughter got to the hospital, it was the husband who was arrested. Another example, women called 911 with an injury thinking that an ambulance would be sent because that's what she was told would happen when, you know, when you call 911 and what happened instead was the police came and they filed a police report, um, ended up arresting her husband without any interpreter present. And now the husband faces possible deportation uh, because he's a green card holder. And most recently, a, a man who told us um, when he encountered a hate incident last year, uh, but because he's undocumented, he was scared about what, you know, calling the police meant. And I think that, like, that's really important to think about because um, we don't often think, I think in the, you know, broad imagination of the Asian American community, the Asian American community is not often thought of as um, undocumented, but in Massachusetts, uh, of the undocumented population, 28.5% of the population is un undocumented. And so that's pretty significant. Um, and the fears of, you know, associated with that are, are very real when we talk about um, uh, kind of this uh, prison to deportation pipeline, right? Um, and then I would also say the model minority myth, I think, plays a big role in how the, um, you know, how the, you know, why it can be difficult um, to address hate incidents in relation to uh, these broader systems that are available, right? Because oftentimes what Asian students experience when they complain about harassment in schools is that nothing happens. And so if that happens enough, it's, it's fair. And, and the, re you know, people don't, people don't report. And, and I think if that happens enough, um, uh, I would say that as a result of that, um, the, people don't report. And I think the model minority myth adds to this invisibility of Asians that ultimately I think leads to the hate violence that we're seeing, right? Because there's this general sentiment that Asians are doing fine. Um, and 
what that means is that plays out through an action, right? Like I've I've spoken to I've spoken to education advocates who who represent students in suspension hearings, and when I raise some of the issues that are happening um, in Asian immigrant communities. The response I've received, and this is education advocates, not all, but this is an education advocate I've talked to, right? Um, is that, oh, like what I, my sense is that Asian students, especially the schools that I interact in, you know, are, are fine, right? Like there's nothing going on. And so there's just not the same amount of focus on the Asian community as there needs to be. And so what does that meant? It's, you know, that means that in terms of the community group response, um, there's been a lot of discussion about personal safety planning. Um, uh, domestic, you know, domestic violence organizations like ATASC do that. Um, we do that with uh, with clients when we interact with them through intake. We talk and we talk to them about what it means to have a personal safety plan, right? Um, you know, interestingly, I think there's also been some discussion about, in some ways, like staff, like our, our own staff needs to have personal safety plans with respect to um, hate incidents, hate crimes, and then. I also think in terms of decreasing the fear and trying to make sure that people understand um, what's possible for them to do in the moment is that harassment trainings for low wage workers has also been um, important and uh, part of the conversations that community groups are having right and. Uh, you know the trainings in some ways they look very different than like the trainings that we might be used to right we're not we're not like showing powerpoints and and uh, you know um, it, it's really it's really a like this conversation among workers in order to understand the types of uh harassment incidents that they're facing in order to help them in their own situation feel safer about what it means to be getting to the subway to be interacting with customers at a nail salon um so i mean so it's probably also to note that it's uh, important to note that hate crimes ultimately are just a symptom of this bigger structural issue, right? When we talk about structural violence and racism, um, the projects that I mentioned earlier that uh, AOU works on is really just a reflection, I think, of that of of the violence um, and. And some of the violence that we end up dealing is state-sponsored violence, right? And what do I mean by that? When I talk about deportations and displacement, a lot of that happens as a result of state actors, right? And I mean, I think a lot of community groups, for example, found it ironic that in, in that week after um, the Atlanta shootings that the Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, their civil rights division um, held a, anti-Asian violence discussion and forum the, the very same week that uh, more than 30 people were deported to Vietnam. Um, and so thinking about um, the type of responses that we need to be having in response to anti-Asian violence, I think is important and making sure that we don't perpetuate that space, that, that state-sponsored violence that ends up ultimately impacting our communities and other communities of color. Um, you know, a good example of this and, you know, to think about, right, in terms of whether or not this is the right response is that uh, in New York, uh, undercover police officers ended up going into nail salons. Um, and, you know, some were lauding that as a really great, um, and I think maybe caught someone, you know, spewing racist things. Um, and at some were lauding that as a really great thing that happened. But a lot of the workers that we were talking to who work in nail salons and many of whom are undocumented 
were incredibly fearful of that um, and, and what that might mean for their own their own safety, right? Like when we talk about safety and violence, um, they were they were concerned um, about about that type of response. And I think one really useful thing, you know, taking it out of the kind of hate crimes uh, context for a little bit, one um, area of work that we we focus on that's useful for thinking about this, I think, is deportations in the Southeast Asian community, uh, because oftentimes, you know, when we, you know, when people might talk about the Cambodian community in Lowell, for example, one of the things that comes up um, is, uh, especially maybe uh, like a decade ago, right, more than a is gang violence, right, and that was seen as the big problem. Um, but if you dig deeper, the question is, is that really the problem, right? Because when we talk about the broader context, um, what we're talking about is a community that has faced displacement as a result of US-sponsored war in Vietnam and other parts of Southeast Asia. And then refugees have come to the United States, the largest refugee population in the United States, um, uh, as a result of displacement. And they're placed in low-income urban areas that are um, often have few resources. They, they aren't giving resources as refugees. And, and as kids faced what we now call bullying in schools, right? That's not what we called it then, but that's what we call it and understand it to be now. Um, but as a result of adults and systems not protecting them, um, they form gangs in order to protect themselves. And some weren't even part of gangs. Some were just, you know, siblings of, of people in gangs and targeted um, because, because they were Cambodian. Um, and then their parents who are unable to speak English aren't able to advocate with them, for them in the school systems. And then so what happens is, um, people get arrested, they get put in prison, and they get deported. Um, and so what are all those different things that are happening, right, when we see gang violence as the big problem, which is there's housing instability, there's economic instability, there's language access issues, there's education equity issues, uh, there's so, you know, there's so police misconduct, right, there's so much going on um, when what is kind of broadcast more widely is is this violence, right? And so I say that because um, I think the solutions for addressing hate crimes and violence is about addressing the broader structural issues that are facing Asian American and other communities of color. And so what what, what does that mean in the form of legislation, right? Um, one of the things that community groups have been uh, trying to push forward for a few years now is this data equity legislation. And um, the important thing about this legislation, I think, is that it actually helps to uh, counter the invisibility that Asian Americans face that I think ultimately leads to the hate violence and incidents that we see. Um, given that there's such a broad range of experiences in our community. I think prioritizing community-based responses is also incredibly important. Um, the community organizations are often at the front lines of responding to the community's needs as we see during the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, I think remain this uh, access point that is incredibly important. Um, increasing language access, um, there's a bill right now that is focused on that. 
supporting undocumented immigrants and the driver's license bill for undocumented immigrants is incredibly, uh, it, you know, is crucial for making sure that people, everyone is able to move about freely to go to school and stay safe, uh, go to school, go to work and stay safe on streets. Um, the support for mental health services, bilingual, bicultural, I think can't be understated and also is a huge, um, you know, reason why I think we see the violence that isn't that, you know, that has been occurring support for housing and stable housing, affordable housing. You know, oftentimes a homeless person is not only, is not necessarily attacking an Asian person on the street because that person is Asian. There's so much other, there's so much other stuff going on. Um, and then um, making sure that there's uh, ethnic studies and that Asian American history and the histories of communities of color as, are taught as part of American history in schools, right? Not just in colleges and universities where there's still such a fight for that curriculum, but also in K to 12 schools. Again, there's a legislation pending that that would be that that is focused on that. And then in terms of hate crimes and incidents, really making sure that there's a uh, a, a a good rapid response network that is staffed by community-based organizations um, because oftentimes it's community organizations that the community feels most comfortable sharing with and reaching out to and and um, making sure that you know anti-harassment and bystander trainings are also language accessible um, uh, and creating victim funds also that aren't tied necessarily to collaboration with police. That's actually been, um, uh, that was one reason that Asian Americans Advancing Justice in, in Atlanta uh, focused on raising money for victims because um, a lot of times you can't get access to those funds unless you're willing to cooperate with the police, which um, there's some uh, you know, hesitation there from our community sometimes. And so, uh, those are just, uh, and, I, and I should actually just also say, just restorative justice models that I that I think are um, often can create better community healing um, and response than um, uh, than increased enforcement, uh, because um, you know I think you know hate incidents can be uh, you know violence directed against our broader community. And so the question is, what type of community conversation should we be generating in order to fix that? I can also um, just, I can also just share the AOU legal hotline, maybe just in the chat, since it'll be easier. <laughs> sure. Thanks so much, Bethany. Uh, thanks for raising a lot of really important issues and multifaceted um, know, approaches to kind of addressing a more systemic and structural problem. I think it's really important us to, to raise awareness about them and um, for us to all think about, you know, ways we can um, address them in, in different ways. Um, so then, uh, Shafak, if uh, hopefully everything um, has been corrected on your end, we'll move on to you. I hope so as well. Let's see if this works now. All right, can you see my uh, slideshow without the next slide and all the other stuff? Yes, that's great. Uh, well, thank you for bearing with me and my apologies again for disrupting the sequence of the program this evening. Uh, so let's start fresh. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for being here today. As Christina mentioned, 
I am the Deputy Chief of the Civil Rights Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and I will be discussing our work around civil rights violations and hate and bias motivated incidents. The mission of the Civil Rights Division is to enforce states, the state's civil rights laws and to protect the fundamental rights of everyone in Massachusetts. One of the primary functions of the division is to enforce the state's anti-discrimination laws, which we'll discuss more shortly. There are a number of ways in which we can get involved, uh, not very different really from what Michelle described about her office. We receive complaints from the public, we receive and we welcome referrals from other organizations, including legal services groups and advocacy groups, and from other government agencies as well. We also engage in proactive work based on what we are hearing and seeing, for example, in the news. Uh, in terms of staffing, we are a 12-member team comprised mainly of attorneys, along with some paralegals and other support staff. Most of us are in the Boston office, and we also have some staff in the Worcester and Springfield offices. Since we enforce the state's civil rights laws, we can get involved when there are violations of those laws or in circumstances where those laws are implicated. Education and outreach is also an important, very important part of our work, uh, making sure that people in Massachusetts are aware of their rights, uh, how to tell when those rights are violated or infringed on, and what resources are, are available to them. We try to focus all our work, including our outreach efforts, in a way that demonstrates our commitment to vulnerable and historically marginalized communities and individuals. We know that we cannot be effective in protecting civil rights if we work in isolation and that we need to work together to be effective. That includes working with community advocates and other government entities at all the levels, municipal, state, and federal. The main areas that we cover in the civil rights division are fair housing and lending, public accommodations, hate crimes and hate and bias motivated incidents, which I'll be focusing on today, employment discrimination, disability access, and civil rights in schools. A significant amount of our work is complaint driven. As I mentioned earlier, we enforce the state's anti-discrimination laws and the majority of the complaints that we get allege violations of the anti-discrimination law. We enforce the anti-discrimination law alongside the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, which also has authority to receive and investigate complaints of discrimination. Broadly speaking, the state's anti-discrimination laws prohibit discrimination based on one's membership in a protected category, such as race, color, national origin, religion, disability, sexual orientation, and gender identity, amongst a few others. The anti-discrimination law applies uh, to several areas, including employment, housing, public accommodations, and education. We review all complaints, uh, although we are not able to take on every single one because of uh, our capacity and limitations on our resources, uh, because of the merits of the complaint, and because we just might not be the relevant or most appropriate agency to address the complaint. Uh, depending on the complaint, we may refer it to another agency or organization or to another part of the Attorney General's office. We may try to resolve uh, the complaint informally, for example, through mediation. And if necessary, we can investigate and litigate matters. Uh, most CRD complaints are related to discrimination and many acts of hate also occur in a context where our anti-discrimination laws apply. So as you all know, uh, and as uh, my colleagues discussed, you know, in, in recent years, there has been a surge in hate and bias incidents, including hate crimes nationwide and in Massachusetts. 
the Attorney General's office started a hate crimes hotline around the 2016 federal election in response to an alarming upward trend in these types of incidents. And it has been especially severe since last year's twin crisis um, around the disparate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the racial injustice, racial and the racial and criminal justice upheaval following the murder of George Floyd. Most recently, particularly in the last few months, as we all know, there's been a surge in harassment and hate crimes and other hate and bias motivated incidents targeting members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. These are clearly very frightening times for many communities, and we want everyone to know that we, the Attorney General's Office, is here for them. Uh, this chart shows a breakdown of uh, hate crimes uh, in Massachusetts, at least based on the reporter statistics, which I would caution everyone not to put too much emphasis on because they are, at the end of the day, self-reported by law enforcement agencies. They track uh, the nationwide numbers quite closely. Uh, nationwide, I believe the numbers are closer to 58% for discrimination based on race and ethnicity, 22% so slightly lower based on religion, and uh, about 16% for discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, as Bethany mentioned, I too want to highlight the distinction between hate crimes which can be prosecuted criminally and civilly, and non-criminal incidents, which I've been referring to, and we in the division refer to as hate and bias motivated incidents, which can, because they're not criminal, only be prosecuted civilly. The hate crimes generally have three elements. Uh, the crime must be committed against a person or the property. The crime must be committed with the intent to intimidate the person and the crime must be committed because of a person's membership in a protected category, as I mentioned, like race, religion, national origin, and, and so on. Uh, the hate crimes can be prosecuted criminally and civilly. Um, in the Civil Rights Division, we do not handle criminal prosecutions, even though in some circumstances, we may bring parallel civil cases alongside criminal prosecution based on the circumstances, for example, based on certain kinds of hate crimes. However, we prioritize using our civil authority for cases that are not criminal in nature, uh, so, uh, which means the hate and bias motivated incidents that I mentioned earlier, and that Ethany also mentioned in her presentation. The Massachusetts Civil Rights Act is one of the most important legal tools that's available to us in the Civil Rights Division for addressing hate and bias motivated incidents, criminal or otherwise. Uh, it protects the rights of all residents and visitors to Massachusetts to live free and to live um, free from the threat of bias-motivated conduct. It's a, a civil law, so it's not about criminal prosecution, but more about protecting people from bias-motivated conduct. The uh, Massachusetts Civil Rights Act authorizes the Attorney General to file an action if there is an interference or attempted interference with any right secured by state or federal law involving threats, intimidation, or coercion. As you can see, the MCRA is intended to protect against interference with any rights. These can be broad constitutional rights, such as the rights to uh, security of the person or the use and enjoyment of property. Um, state and federal civil rights and anti-discrimination laws also provide additional protections involving, for example, voting, employment, education, travel, housing, use of public spaces, participation in government programs, and so on. These are some examples of 
areas where we have brought MCRA actions in the past. Um, although hate and bias motivated incidents can involve discriminatory intent, they're often not actionable under the state's anti-discrimination laws, which makes the MCRA a particularly useful tool. For example, harassment by, by neighbors, including racially motivated harassment, may not be actionable under the state's fair housing laws, although the fair housing laws make EVUS claims, claims against the landlord, say, for not taking any action. But uh, neighbor on neighbor uh, discrimination or harassment based on discrimination can be actionable under the MCRA based on the circumstances. The remedies for the MCRA include civil rights injunctions, compensatory damages for victims, cost and attorney's fees, and penalties of up to $5,000 per violation. Now, because our main goal in bringing MCRA actions is to protect the victim, injunctive relief is particularly important to us. A civil rights injunction can not only protect the immediate targets of the conduct that we base our action on, but also other people who might be members of the same uh, category or uh, community even. For example, if uh, we are uh, looking at a bad actor for uh, discriminatory conduct based on uh, the target's race, we may seek and obtain an injunction, not only protecting that person from subsequent acts uh, based on race, but also anyone else uh, who might have the same, or who might share that person's race as well. Now, we often receive complaints of hateful speech, and these can be particularly difficult to address legally. As a baseline principle, the First Amendment provides broad protection to speech, even if the speech is hateful and offensive, even extremely offensive. As a government agency, the First Amendment applies directly to and limits our ability to address hate speech. But there are some exceptions which may allow certain kinds of hate speech to be prosecuted civilly, civilly or criminally. Um, for example, the First Amendment may not apply in the K through 12 education context. It doesn't protect certain kinds of speech such as fighting words, harassment, or uh, a true threats or speech that's integral to the commission of a crime. And if uh, speech qualifies under the MCRA as threatening, intimidating, or coercive, then it may be actionable under the MCRA as, as well. Uh, I'll give uh, three brief examples of cases that we have brought um, under the MCRA um, to protect people from hateful conduct. In Roslindale, for example, we sued a man for engaging in frequent and unprovoked racist attacks against three black families who live right next door to his home. And we obtained an injunction against him that prevents him from engaging in that kind of hateful conduct, not only against the three black families, but against any other black persons that he might encounter. And um, keeping in mind the fact that violations of a civil rights of a civil injunction can be criminal in nature, this these kind of injunctions can, even though the original goal is not criminal prosecution, if someone violates an injunction, then we can prosecute those criminally as well. Uh, we also have two pending cases uh, based on situations in Lynn and Fitchburg, both in the housing context. In Lynn, we sued the landlord of a, of a building in Chelsea for intimidating and harassing the tenants who were three Latinx families and making threats to call ICE, which um, 
as you can imagine, has been a particularly weaponized threat in the past four plus years and unfortunately continues to be a very effective um, intimidation tactic. Uh, in Fitchburg, we sued a property management company for failing to address race-based harassment of a Latinx family by two white neighbors. Um, the Lynn and the Fitchburg cases are both in litigation. We are hoping for outcomes similar to that in Roslindale, but uh, stay tuned. There are a number of ways to contact the Civil Rights Division online, by phone. We have a couple of, of hotlines. And in pre-pandemic times, we welcomed walk-ins to um, our three offices where we have a civil rights team presence in Boston, Worcester, and Springfield. Currently, that's uh, on hold because we are mainly working remotely. But as we uh, transition to a more in-person work environment, we will uh, hopefully be able to host people um, for walk-ins at our offices as well. Um, I imagine that my contact information, which I forgot to include on this slide, will be shared, or maybe it already has been shared in uh, the flyer or the other emails for the event. But I welcome uh, outreach to meet directly or to our office through any of these points of contact. Um, Try to speed up my presentation as quickly as possible, in part to make up for my gaffe earlier, um, but we are open to any questions that folks might have. Thank you so much, Nafak, and no worries at all. Um, thank, it was a very informative um, presentation, and it's uh, encouraging to hear all the great work the AG's office is doing. Um, so I'll go ahead and um, turn next to our Q&A session. We've had a couple more comments slash questions that we can um, get through, uh, which Bethany may have answered. Sorry, hold on. I just realized, I think I only shared to the panelists. I'll reshare to everyone. Oh, okay. Was this in response? So we had a question asking if there were any volunteer opportunities. Oh, no, this is for the um, emergency relief fund. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll oh. reshare that. But uh, volunteer opportunities, yes. I mean, you should uh, get in touch with me. I'll share that in the um, in the chat, my contact information in the chat, too. Uh, there's definitely opportunities to get involved, um, even if you don't speak an Asian language. Great. And then um, someone asked, will these PowerPoints be distributed or available somewhere? So I don't know if uh, Michelle or Beth uh, excuse me, Michelle or Shafak, you're able or to share um, these PowerPoints or willing to, um, or if it's not something you're able to share, uh, we can figure out a way to make them either available. I'm not sure we can talk through it with Shana. The BBA can have a place to do it, or um, perhaps you can send it to, directly to individuals who are um, interested in having them. Um, just as a note, um, this is being recorded um, and it will be available on the BBA's Learn Online Library. So if you did want to visit this entire program again, um, it will be available in recording online as well, just in case. Perfect. Thanks, Rani. And then the next uh, question slash comment was again to Bethany. Um, for thanking you for highlighting AOU's important work. Um, especially appreciate the discussion about hate incidents that the Asian community has experienced in increasing amounts. 
but which don't rise to the level of a prosecutable hate crime. Could you please post a link to the fundraising page for the pandemic-related relief fund that you mentioned was started for some of AOU's clientele? We'll love to contribute and share with others. Can I share? That's what I just shared in the chat. In the chat, great. Thanks so much. Um, and then we have a question from Beth um, who asked, could you address proving intent or motivation in hate crimes? Do you have thoughts on how to strengthen or change applicable statutes? Is the answer through legislation or class action suits, better PR? Um, I'm not sure if the panelists have any insight on that. I will say that I uh, did see the recent uh, news that came out right before this panel started that the, the US House Senate had passed the anti-Asian hate crimes bill, which essentially um, encourages expedited review by the DOJ of a pandemic related hate crimes. Um, not quite, I'm sure you guys don't know at this moment how that might affect um, your enforcement efforts, but if you have any insight, it'd be great to hear either um, Michelle or Shabak. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm not the right person to eloquently address this question since I don't focus on criminal hate crimes prosecution. But I will say, and I think this builds on Bethany's super thoughtful um, statements that I think prosecutions, criminal prosecutions, or I guess, you know, federal government led prosecutions are always gonna just be one small tool and a huge toolbox of, of ways that we can address um, bias related incidents and anti-Asian violence. I think there's always gonna be a limitation on the way that intent is required to be proved in the legal sort of equation. And I think it's, it's, gonna, it's not only tough in the hate crimes, um, prosecutions, but it's tough in so many other anti-discrimination um, suits. So I think this is about sort of figuring out how to also fix systems and think about structural changes outside of just individual prosecutions of individual um, bad actors. And, and I think that's what our civil rights unit tries to do too, is, is, you know, most of our cases are about patterns or practices and about not just focusing on the wrongs and the constitutional violations that might've occurred, but thinking about how to forward look, fix systems and structures that lead to um, harms in, in a variety of um, spheres, be it education, housing, employment, et cetera. So that's not a very good direct answer to your question, but um, hopefully provide some sort of um, thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks so much, Michelle. I don't have any uh, good answer for the question either, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, I will point out that on the civil prosecution side under the MCRA, there is no intent uh, or there's no requirement to prove intent or motivation because there's actually no uh, requirement to prove that a certain act occurred with a discriminatory intent. We as an office prioritize uh, bringing MCRA actions in circumstances where we believe that there was an intent to discriminate or where there was bias. But one of the good things is to um, prevail in those cases. We don't have to prove in court that the person acted with discriminatory intent. 
but in general, proving discriminatory intent, which we encounter routinely for our more routine anti-discrimination law enforcement work is, uh, can be extremely challenging um, as Michelle indicated. Uh, it can be different if um, it's occurring in a systemic context, if there's a pattern and practice um, case or if it's a disparate impact case where we, we don't quite have to prove individual intent uh, in the same way, but it's um, definitely a challenging topic. I think the only thing I would add to this is just in thinking about legislative solutions, uh, you know, in response to this moment, I think it's important to uh, just figure out what's like what's going on first, right? And what we know is that reporting and tracking of hate crimes and incidents is 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 not good. Um, and so, you know, and you know, to the point where the stop AAPI hate, um, you know, community driven response is has become like the legitimate uh you know statistic for understanding what it means to be reporting hate crimes against the asian american community right and so um i mean i would say you know to the extent that we're thinking about legislation let's let's react in a way that um, allows us to understand what's actually happening first before thinking about then what we what we do. And so to me, that means like thinking about reporting, improving the reporting and tracking possibilities. Thank you, Bethy. I, th I think a common theme that I've heard is, you know, reporting and data collection is extremely important. Um, and so like, don't, necessarily feel like you need to take it upon yourselves before reporting a crime to assess whether it rises to a level of something that can be addressed that, you know, I think Michelle Shafak and Bethany have all um, reiterated that, you know, they really want to hear from you and, and help you navigate, you know, if this is something that, you know, can be actionable or something the office can keep their pulse on and, and read on both at all levels. Um, and so I think that's a really great thing to hear from both federal, state and local um, folks uh, who are really in the know. And with that, I think we don't have any more questions. So um, like, thanks again to all of you, Michelle, Shafak and Bethany for a really wonderful presentation. I found it extremely informative. Um, and educational and really important in light of the recent um, events that have happened. I apologize about the baby in the background. Um, but again, thank you all so much um, and all, to all the attendees. And um, uh, Shane, if there's anything else to wrap up. Nope, that's it. Thank you all so much for attending. Just a last reminder that uh, this recording will be um, available online on the BDA's Learn Online Library. Have Great. a good one, Thanks everyone. Thanks so much, everyone.